This is an ABC podcast. When Daryl Jones was a keen young ecology student, he drew up a fieldwork project to count wild birds living in his hometown, Wagga Wagga. Just after dawn, Daryl set off slowly down the quiet suburban streets, peering into front gardens through a pair of binoculars. After a few days of this, he noticed someone standing behind a screen door watching him, and so Daryl gave them a cheerful wave. Piss off, pervert! They shouted and slammed the door. The next thing Daryl knew, a police car was crawling along behind him with a bunch of cops demanding to know what the hell he was doing. This episode has many of the elements that have marked Daryl's career as an urban ecologist. His enthusiastic curiosity about the wild birds that, against all odds, are flourishing in our cities and towns. And the many interactions that happen between people and birds and between people about birds. Daryl is a professor of ecology at Griffith University, and his new book is Curlews on Vulture Street. Hi, Daryl. Hello, Sarah. Now, your earliest years were spent on a farm outside of Wagga. Once your chores were done, how much freedom did you have to roam about? Yes, once the chores were done, I had a few things that needed to be done on the farm, like every farm kid. But then I was out of there and uh, we, I was so lucky because we had a forest. I call it the forest. It, yeah, it was a forest, I guess. It wasn't that big. But it was colitrous trees. So everybody in inland New South Wales, at least in the eastern part, know about colitrous pines, famous for being rot-proofs, um, termite-proof, all that sort of thing. And so lots of the houses, including ours, were made of that stuff. But so there was a forest of those valuable trees. It just transformed into a, a magic place for me, a fantasy land where I lived out because I was alone on a farm and my siblings were all too young at this stage and I was miles from the nearest other farm, I just spent all this time alone um, having adventures and being not, not really living in the real world at all and it was fantastic. What kind of animals do you remember catching your eye as a, as a young kid? Probably the most notable were the apostle birds, lousy jacks as, as we all call them out in the bush and they are extraordinary birds. They're, they're very social. They get around in weird groups of um, you know, a dozen or so, hence apostle birds. They don't seem to take any notice of what's going on around them. They're just squabbling away and mucking around and making weird electronic noises <laughs> and they were always there. And, and the, the thing about them that I always remember is they took no notice of me. So I'd yell at them sometimes and they'd all stop and look and then just forget about it and go back to whatever they were doing, which, which was great. So that was one of the notable groups. What did your parents make of your interest in birds and other animals? Most of the time they just thought it was quaint. You know, it was just harmless, I guess, fun. When you grow up on a farm in the bush, at least in those days, which was the 70s and 60s and 70s, everything had to be practical. Every, you know, the reason to do anything, to spend energy on anything whatsoever, it had to be something useful. So this was just a little bit of a childhood thing that you could get away with, but it couldn't last. I mean, you couldn't possibly make a job out of it, for example. <laughs> Wildlife did sometimes make itself known to your mum and dad, though. What happened one day inside the house not long after it had some new lino put in? Yeah, the new lino. I mean, so we were, we were, were not wealthy people at all. And so anything at all that, that would enhance the, the house or make, a, make mum's little empire somewhat slightly different or better was incredibly important. So, yes, there was a, a grand opening of the lino. You don't even know what, wanted to know what the punishment would be for walking mud on the place or anything like that. So one cold winter's, well, it, must, it can't, can't be winter, but it was a pretty chilly day. 
mum was out the back hanging out the washing. I was inside. I think I was talking to the, you know, my baby sister who would have been just in a, in a, in a high chair or something, just chatting with her. And mum came in through the, the back door with the, with the washing and, and I saw immediately on her face something completely changed and I followed her gaze into the kitchen where in front of the stove, the wood stove, which was going, was a very large brown snake rolled up in a, in a circle and everyone just froze and so did my mother. So she's now aware that there's now a snake between her and her children, no husband anywhere to be seen. But he had, and for this very purpose, had a carefully sharpened hoe just outside the back door and mum was standing at the back door. And what then happened is now of legend because, so remember, brand new lino, don't get an atom of dirt on it. She then proceeded in one deft movement, diced that snake, like... Into into mice microscopic pieces in a in a flurry of of limbs and anguish and and until there was nothing left. Was she making noise? Do you remember during all of this? I, I don't what? remember anything. I was just standing with my my mouth open because it was. I've never seen my mother activated to such an extent. Did the lino? I know the snake didn't survive, the but s- did the lino survive that assault? The, my father turned up at this stage and looked, gazed over that what had happened over this scene of destruction, and just went. The lino. And, and, and so for the rest of the time we stayed there, which was quite a number of years, the 7,000 c- deep cuts into the lino were always to be evident. You know. After a, a number of years there, your dad took a job in town and the family left the farm. Where did you get your wildlife fix, Daryl, once you moved into Wagga? You know, like every, every kid who moves from the solitary nature of life on a farm by yourself pretty much to... It was just a tiny village, but just outside of Wagga, Lake Albert it was called. Um, that was a big shock socially because I had to now have people all around me. We lived in a street with other houses and all that sort of thing. That was a big thing that changed. But again, there was a, a, a place where I could disappear to. Um, an area, it was primarily for adjustment where, where people could put horses and cows and whatever for a while, run by the council. And it was known as the common, which in the old traditional English term where it's a kind of common area that people can use. And uh, so there was always a few horses wandering around and things. But it was, a, it was a beautiful area of inland eucalypt woodland and full of animals and birds. And it was, that's where I disappeared to every chance I got. What did you discover that some of the teenagers in this little town were doing on the slide? Yeah, now this is... It was completely normal at the time. So this is early 70s, probably late 60s era. And in the, in the bush, just about every kid had a bird egg collection. And so I was useless at climbing trees. I was absolutely useless. But I managed to sort of get myself talked into one of these juvenile groups because I was desperate to make friends, you know, fit in any way you could. And thankfully, my, my uncle um, bred parrots, Australian parrots, and he let, let me have a whole lot of eggs from him, from them. And this was, this was actually serious kudos in this little group because these were special eggs. They weren't just, you know, the common birds. And that, somehow they allowed me membership of this group. So wherever you were going, you were always looking out for a nest that potentially could have eggs for the collectors. And so you came back to the group and said, I've just found a whatever bird and you, let's go and steal the eggs. I was very strategic, even at that stage. I always picked nests that no one could possibly get to, you know, <laughs> on the tallest trees sticking right out on a dead limb. 
you couldn't possibly get to them and, and that kind of saved the birds that I was, <laughs> that I was interested in. And then what would happen, Daryl? Would kids swap their eggs or display them? Or, or... Oh, yeah. No, it was kind of... We, we all knew it was slightly not illegal, although it probably... Now, it probably wasn't illegal in those days, but it was a bit bit suspect. So we didn't... We certainly didn't tell the adults about it. But there was definitely a, you know, a black market in trading different things. And that that went on for quite a while. Did you ever trade those parrot eggs or they stayed your prized possession? Um, I, I, there was a couple, I think, where I had enough to, that I could trade them for something else that, that was you know, more interesting than, than just a white egg because, unfortunately, parrot eggs are just white, round things. They're not very interesting. <laughs> Sometimes animals ended up at your place as well. How did you become a kind of amateur zookeeper? I, I think I started out collecting some common reptiles, so blue-tongued lizards and bearded dragons were the common ones, and... I can tell you right now that 100% of them escaped within a day or two of my enclosures, which were terribly constructed. What were they made out of? Oh, whatever I could find, you know, just chicken wire and a box, you know, that the fruit came in or something like that. So they were not very good. But, you know, I learned a lot by, the, again, those, those mistakes. But the first really notable bird that I received was a, a crow. Well, not a crow, because even though wagga, wagga, it refers to congregation of crows or a lot of different crows. They're actually Australian ravens out there, but they're big blackbirds that go, ah, 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 just everyone calls them crows. <laughs> but there was one of these, an adult crow had been caught by a farmer stealing eggs from his chicken yard. But his daughter, who was a school friend of mine, said, no, no, no there's somebody back in the village who will look after this thing. So this, um, this farmer very reluctantly brought the bird to me and dumped it at my place. So thereupon I became the, the keeper of Lucifer, <laughs> the, the raven. And Lucifer, not for a moment, ever tamed down. He, he never took to me, wasn't in any way grateful that I was helping him out and giving him food every day. He was truly nasty. How did uh, Lucifer teach you something about interspecial trickery? <laughs> yeah, so we now know that that the ravens and the corvid family are incredibly smart. And I had an inkling of that when I saw what Lucifer was up to. So I had a dog, Candy the, the Corgi, who was far less intelligent. <laughs> Something about the description of Candy the Corgi. Absolutely. I, know, I don't seriously. see a fair competition with no. Lucifer. <laughs> and I observed that Lucifer, when there was nobody watching, it was only, only happened if he was absolutely sure that no one was around. He was so careful about doing anything where anyone could watch. But he would put some of his food in a place where Candy could almost get at it, just inside his cage. And Candy spent a lot of time sort of at the front trying to dig a hole to get at the food that, that Lucifer had placed there. And Candy thought that he was getting, that Lucifer was trying to give him some food. Lucifer had other ideas, and, and obviously you can see where this is going. Eventually the hole's big enough and Lucifer's gone. And Candy never did get the food that he was after. <laughs> but I thought that was actually planned. It, he knew exactly what was going on and, and, and it came to fruition. You took possession of another bird, but a magpie, a young magpie. How did, how did that magpie come into your zoo? That was Jimmy, Jimmy the magpie. And Jimmy has a very important part of, part of my story. Um, Jimmy was blown out of a nest during a really violent storm one summer's evening. And I, we always used to go out afterwards, after a big storm, a very, very, especially a violent one, to see all, what had been happening. And there was trees down everywhere and branches all over the place. And I saw this bedraggled-looking 
black and white things, completely drenched, but looking okay, standing on the top of a broken, of a broken limb. And he just looked at me and went, you know, and here I am. And I just walked over to him and he didn't fly away. And I just picked him up gently and wrapped him up in my jumper or whatever and brought him home. And that was, that was the first time that I'd been in the situation of raising an orphaned animal because the nest was gone. We never saw the, the adults. And what kind of temperament did he have? Because wild animals have temperaments, just, Absolutely. just like pets do or other animals, don't yeah, they? Yeah, well, this was a truly wild magpie, a baby that should have been completely terrified of a stranger, especially a human. He'd probably never seen a human before. But he was completely and absolutely tame in the sense of having no fear. I'll, I'll put it that way. He didn't fear us or care about the humans that around him. And he just assumed that I would look after him. It, it, was, that, it was that simple. And I, with, with the help of my mother, who was much more experienced at doing these kinds of things, she concocted some sort of meal. I think it was, it was some dreadful thing of mince and egg mm. mixed up. And she decided that that was a good thing. And I now realise decades later it would have been a perfect amount of, of protein for a young baby bird. Um, but it used to go really rancid after a while, so I can still remember this. I can still, I can smell that right now, a vile smell. But the magpies didn't care, and he grew up very quickly and became a very healthy, very happy, very friendly, but still free-roaming magpie. He was a bird I knew I would have temporarily. I wanted him to be wild, so I encouraged him to go looking for his own food, and it didn't take long before he was digging up worms from the lawn and doing all that sort of thing. And he would follow me around. He became independent quite quickly, and that was good. That's just what I wanted. I thought, wouldn't it be nice if he could be a truly wild magpie? But come and visit me occasionally. And that would, that would have been fantastic. What happened instead to What happened to instead? Jimmy? So, yes, we had, like everywhere, there was the local bully group of people. And I had been out somewhere and I came back. And there was this particular person standing outside our house. And I'd I, my my heart absolutely sank because every time you saw this particular person who was who was a real thug um, in the area and genuinely was a terrorized, terrorism kind of activity, it was never good to be confronted by him and his small gang of, of acolytes were there. And I then realised with absolute horror that he was looking, you know, looking at me and then looking up above him where on the lines, the electricity lines, was Jimmy just nesting there innocently, looking down as though, oh, there's some nice people down below. And then I realised that he, that this thug had an air gun, an air rifle, and as I watched, he shot the bird. It sort of spiralled down with a squawk and landed right on, on the floor and they, and, and they just walked off with a laugh. And that was a bird that I'd raised from, you know, he would have died without my care. He was probably six months old by that stage and had a really powerful place in my heart. So that was a serious blow. That really knocked me, knocked it's me for six. Such an awful mm. story and just mm. the wanton cruelty mm. of, of that. How did it change you, Daryl, do you think? Oh, it really had an effect on me. That's, I, I feel almost emotional now just thinking about that because it was such a blow and, and I guess such a pointless blow. And I guess at that stage I, I thought, why are humans so thoughtless about nature? That, and so that's been something that I've always thought about. And, ha- and can I change that in any way? But for a while there, it really knocked me flat. I would have been really thoroughly depressed about that and, and took solace off in the con- common, spent a lot more of the time than I had just away alone. 
and stewing over the stupidity and pointlessness of things. Um, and of course, nothing ever happened about that. You know, there was no way we could that wouldn't have even registered as a as a drama in in the current in the circumstance of the social environment there where I lived. That would have just been regarded as trivial. But it really had a big effect on me. But it got me thinking. I need to know more about this. Now, everything I'd learned to this stage is just self-taught. And I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know what most of the names of the birds around me or any of the animals. But I was really interested in them. And spending all that time by myself out in the forest when I was on the farm and also in the common when I was a teenager growing up, I couldn't help but notice. I obviously had an observant gene, you know, that I watched things all the time. And it was at that stage I thought, I need to do this. I need to, something in my life needs to change. I want to, I didn't know what it was, you know, I'm only whatever it was, 16 or something at the time. I want to learn something about the wildlife so that I can make a difference. I didn't know what that meant at all. That's, that, that was an, a motivation from, from the death of that bird. I really became determined to learn more and became you know, quite, a, quite an, um, a student of nature at that stage. Well, that determination took you off to Armidale to study it at the University of New England. What did your dear mother give you to help with this <laughs> momentous transition? Uh, if you're listening, Mum, you probably haven't heard this already. Now, she made a very thoughtful gift. It was a alphabetised uh, little book with all sorts of tips and hints and a- admonitions <laughs> and, and suggestions on how to live a good and proper life. Do you remember any of them um, still? There was some like avoid... Communists, um, you know. <laughs> in Armidale, you would have had to be on high alert. <laughs> uh, communists, you know, be careful of atheists, you know, the usual sorts of things like that. Um, there would have been, absolutely, there would have been something about make sure you don't forget your poor mother who will be desperately waiting for you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you paid it good heed, or at least some of it. <laughs> a few years into your study in New England, Daryl, you did a fieldwork course in ornithology where you had to spend a day observing a bird and then report on it to the group. Why were your teachers completely disbelieving when you reported on what you'd seen? I had found this big bird that I'd never really seen before, never taken any notice of before, and there it was building a mound just outside where we were staying. And I thought, why go any further? What's, <laughs> what's going on here? I'll just watch this bird. So I grabbed a chair and a notebook and just sat all day and watched what went on. So I watched this thing all day. And what was really interesting was he was building a mound and I didn't know what the mound was. It was just a big pile of sticks and leaves and things. But then I saw another bird which was different and it didn't have this big yellow wattle, which is characteristic of the, of the males. And I thought, oh, this must be a female. And so eventually she worked her way up onto the top of the mound where he was. And then in a flash, they mated. But then what happened was another female came as well. And the same thing happened exactly. Now, I'm thinking at the time, everybody knows this. Why would I be seeing anything unusual? Well, that night, we all had to give a little talk about what our project were. And I just stood up innocently and said, what happened and the two females came and, and the male mated with both of them and they both laid eggs in the thing and thank you very much and that was my you know, that's what I saw today. Well there was a, a well known professor and he stood up immediately and he said it's disappointing young man that you are so mistaken you couldn't have seen that because everybody knows conclusively that the megapodes, which is the, the, the family of birds that the brush turkey belongs to, is unquestionably monogamous. So I'm disappointed with what you've, what you've told us. You must be mistaken. First of all, I went, gosh, I must be wrong. 
And then I went, no, I saw that. I had, I've got all the notes. I wrote all that down. I saw it. I saw that. The third thing I thought was, hey, this might be interesting. There might be something going on here that apparently nobody else has noticed. And you decided to pursue that further by making brushed turkeys the focus of your PhD thesis. Where did you go to study them then, Daryl? So I was in New South Wales in the University of New England in, and those brushed turkeys lived in the rainforest for a, a fair distance from there. So I knew that they would live in the rainforest and it took me ages to find them, but I di- eventually found a wonderful population of them on Mount Tambourine. And so you had this population of brush turkeys that you wanted to observe. How did you go about distinguishing them, telling them apart from one another? That's a really good point because I was doing what now is known as behavioural ecology. You have to know what every individual is and remember them each time. Um, Some animals you can tell apart by colours or patterns or something like that, but the turkeys don't. You can't do that. So I, I had to mark them. I had to make them into individuals. And so we eventually learned a way to do that was put on a, a tag on their wing and we used commercially available cattle ear tags, the same things that you see on every cow in, in Australia. And each tag had a number, but these birds did not stay numbers to you, Daryl. You gave them names. That's right. Tell me about Wallace and Ernest. Ah, well, I named all of my birds, and there was probably about 50 or so at the end, on relatives of mine, which turned out to be an embarrassing thing to do, but existing uncles and aunts or the next generation back, and I had to go through the family tree and and dredge up some of the names. And so eventually there was, you know, Beryl and Gladys and and, uh, Doris and Daisy. All engaged in riotous affairs with one another. Absolutely. I mean, the most embarrassing one was where Beryl actually mated with three different males and they were all named after her brothers. Oh, Daryl. Which was, yeah... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so tell me more, though, about Wallace and how hierarchical the scrub turkeys They are very hierarchical. So one of the things was to work out, this is a genuine pecking order. It, that's where the word comes from. So they don't fight all the time, but they interact. There's always going to be a somebody approaches somebody else and what happens then? If they defer and walk away, you can say that one's dominant to that one. And I'll, I'll eventually work out a, a whole hierarchy. How do they show their rank, the, the males? In the non-breeding season, the male and females look very similar. The yellow wattle withdraws completely and it just looks like a small, dull-coloured yellow cravat. But when the males are breeding and they've got a, a mound, that expands enormously until, until it's really big. And it's interesting, they also it's not just a signal of male prowess or whatever, and they're showing it off to the females to say, I'm big, big and beautiful by, by the size of my wattle. Um, they can also blow it up into a, into a sack, fill it with air, and then force the air out through their nostrils so it makes a booming sound. That is a really strong thing. That's, that's what the ultimate signal to say, I own this place and keep away if you're another male. And yeah. these mounds that they're also busily engaged in building mm. during breeding season, how big do they get? They're the same weight as a small car. They're absolutely enormous. The optimal size, and I say optimal because biggest doesn't mean best in this case because the females must find an incubator. That's what they are. They're, they're hot inside. They're of compost heap that are carefully controlled by the males and um, the females must get access to those and the, and the males get access to the females to mate with them by saying, well, if you want to lay your eggs in my mound, you know, you know what you have to do. 
there's a very strong competition among the males. Does every male get an egg? Absolutely not. So it's still being worked out, why do the females choose certain males? But not only was Wallace the most dominant and prominent male, he was the top of the rung of the ladder, he also was the most successful at getting the females. He got about 50% of the eggs that were laid that year. And then all the other males in, in rank go down until they've got very fo- small. Now, what's interesting is all, all the males build mounds of adult size. About half of them receive any eggs and about half receive absolutely no eggs whatsoever. Despite their mounds. And they, build, they spend months building those mounds. And for whatever reason known only to the females, they never get visited by them. Despite that cranky professor saying that you must have been wrong about what you'd witnessed between the mating back there of those two brush turkeys, what did you actually come to realise was going on when it, when it came to copulation between these brush turkeys? It was actually much more extraordinary than, than you'd even first realised. Oh, realize. no, absolutely. So th- this was fantastic in terms of me as a scientist because I had... And, and he was right, that, that professor was right. Frith had declared that megapodes were monogamous and that's all there is to it. And so I've got that in writing by an absolute world-famous expert. This is fantastic because I can say, actually, little old me is going to you're show Mount that Tambourine. you're completely wrong. And it was, <laughs> that was brilliant to, to know that. But what, I've, what I found was not just non-monogamous, but dramatically so, so that Wallace would get... 12 of the 24 females would mate with him and other males would get absolutely none. This was a very uneven sort of way that it was, it was distributed. So they turned out to be, as a humans, we might poorly or simplistically say they were, they were promiscuous, but promiscuous suggests that they're not making decisions. No, they were making very strong decisions, very informed decisions. The females had this, this system completely sorted out because... The males knew that they would only, could only get the females to visit them if they had a perfect mound, exactly the right temperature, and they were always there, and they themselves looked pristine. There's no way to cheat. The females would just rock up every, every single morning, every single female would come up, come beside and say, hmm, yes, hmm, okay, and then wander off. And the males would have to stay there. They, they, if, they're, if they're absent or they aren't looking spick and span, the females had it completely sorted. And then they would make their own decision, I think it's him. And then they would mate with him and lay there. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So you began this deep dive into the the love life and other and other parts of the lives of of bush chooks, as I want to call them, on Mount Tambourine. But then you got a call from a bloke in Parks and Wildlife, saying that he wanted your help with a complaint that had from a homeowner in suburban Brisbane. Mm. What was going on when you turned up? That was that was a famous um, naturalist who worked for the Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service called Rick Natras. He was very well known, and he was um, he was the person who was kind of given the job of dealing with the suburban wildlife problems. But he was very much ahead of his time. He wanted people to appreciate how incredible these, any of the animals were. And he was always on 
about trying to get people to live peacefully and, and appreciate how amazing these animals were. Anyway, this is very early days because don't forget when I turned up in 1983 at, at Griffith University to start my PhD, there were absolutely no brush turkeys in suburban environments anywhere. That was unheard of. It, this was a rainforest bird. I had to go way off to Mount Tambourine to find them in the depths of the rainforest. So Rick, Rick rang me and said, they tell me you know a thing about brush turkeys. I didn't know who this person was. And I went, well, by definition, just to the side, by definition, if you've done a PhD, you are the world expert for at least 10 minutes on that topic. <laughs> And he said, well, come with me. I think if you're the expert, we'll go out and visit somebody. And we went straight out to a very wealthy place, a part of town. And there was a lady bereft because she had just spent a lot of money making a great big new garden, putting lots and lots of plants. And the whole lot had been swept up into a big pile of a big mess in the backyard. And she was absolutely distraught and very angry. And so I realised all my highfalutin scientific stuff meant absolutely nothing. Well, not entirely for nothing, because I, at one stage this lady said, why has it built this big mess in my backyard? And I didn't have an answer to that. And I said, that mess is actually a nest, and it's going to be for, for eggs. Eggs? And, she, you know, and, so, and I was able to then explain that the, the males build this, they carefully tend it, they spend a lot of time making sure it's the right temperature. The females come along, they lay their eggs in the nest and they leave the eggs there and no one is going to look after the eggs. And then when the eggs hatch, the babies find themselves at the bottom of a metre of dirt and sticks. They have to dig their way to the surface. And when they arrive and emerge at the surface of the mound, nobody looks after them. They're alone, they're completely vulnerable. At this stage, she's like, what are you talking about? Is that happening in my yard? And so that became a way in to try and explain how what was just a mess to people was actually something absolutely fascinating. And that was, that was a good example because that was the first time that somebody, I was able to change somebody's perspective completely. Because when she was distraught and angry when we arrived and then she was, I can't believe that there's going to be babies coming out. What do you think they'll need to feed? Will I feed them? And that, that, that was where, at that moment, Sarah, I became an urban ecologist. Didn't know it at the time. But that's where it started. So that was back in the early 80s where this was a rare thing, worthy of a phone mm. call. Brush turkeys are everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Now, absolutely. I mean, I have a father-in-law who helps his bush chooks build their mounds, gets a spade <laughs> out, actually contributes. People yeah. have them in all their yards. What, what happened? Uh, How did this invasion occur? It's, it's absolutely extraordinary. Cause so so as, I, as I described, those chicks are so vulnerable. Nobody looks after them. They, they have no parental care of any sort. They're just... Mars bars on legs for all the cats and, and snakes and everything like that. They, they're just going to be eaten alive. And I thought there's no way that they can possibly survive. They're just, there's, no, there's no chance. It must be just a simple weight of numbers because each female lays on average 12 eggs. So I think it's just the sheer number of them that some survive. But, and that, but, but also, very importantly, those birds, which I had thought were a rainforest specialist, turn out to be a generalist in a sense. They can make mounds out of anything. Now, some things that they make the mounds out of are terrible. They just, like one mound I remember visiting, radiated heat. It, when we, we measured the temperature, it was about 50 degrees. Now, he might have been proud of that, the male, but no female's going to go anywhere near it. They'll hard boil the eggs, you know, without a, without a doubt. But, but what, what I'm trying to get at is they have shown that they can adapt to very different conditions, and that's the secret to their success. 
It wasn't scrub turkeys that occupied most of your friend Rick's time, though. What bird did he get most calls about? Well, yeah, so I, I realised now he, he had a plan and he was going to see how I went with the, um, with the, with the brushed turkeys and it's that a, seemed to go all right. A bit like the crow, Lucifer and, and the corgi candy. That's, he was luring you in, <laughs> That's right. Daryl. That's right, because I do remember very distinctly having a cup of coffee with him one day after a brushed turkey event of some sort and he said, now it's time for the big one. And what he meant by the big one was the most important and widespread suburban wildlife conflict in Australia, magpies. That was the big one because he said, we don't even know why they attack people. We don't know anything about it. The traditional method was for any wildlife that people don't like, you just shot it. But now that these things are occurring in town, you know, in the suburbs, you can't just get your gun out and shoot them here. We desperately need some other way to to deal with them. So would you be interested in taking this on board and, and trying to find out what, what's going on, why are the magpies attacking people, all the details, let's do it. So it's like forming sort of the A-team or the mod squad or something. Yeah. You're, you're set up and you had a fax machine. We had a fax machine, absolutely. All the ori- What originally used to happen was the office for the National Parks and Wildlife Service would receive frantic calls from somebody who's been swooped again or attacked or something. So when an opportunity came along for him to con somebody else into taking this on, he went, we'll receive the calls, but we'll just fax them through to you. So I actually bought a fax machine, a fax machine. This was the pinnacle of technology at the time. (laughs) And we set up our our little group. We called ourselves Magpies R Us. (laughs) And we even had T-shirts with with the the slogan on them and all this sort of thing. And then it started. And then there was a baptism by fire. about Magpies R Us's first capture? The first one was a horrifying situation, which I've seen many times since. It was in a schoolyard, um, a primary school in southern part of, of Brisbane, and we arrived just as the kids are leaving at the end of the day, so the place was full of parents and people going on, and we soon realised that there was something on here. It was Everyone was looking so alert and there was screaming and yelling and people were flying to their cars and screaming off as fast as they could. And we realised then that there was a magpie swooping back and forth and clipping people on the, on the ear as they, as they went past. Terrifying. It really was terrifying. How did you catch it? Well, yeah, so this, Rick, Rick had explained the technique for doing this. So because magpies are so utterly territorial, they will not stand for a moment another magpie in their territory. If you can get another magpie that you've already got, we had an injured one or a one that was... Uh, one you prepared earlier. One we prepared earlier. <laughs> We put that in a small cage and we took that out into an open area and then over the top of that small cage we put a large chicken wire round cage with a kind of little open entrance into it. Now the magpie that lives there is, will be so incensed by the presence of another magpie, it will, will take no notice of, of the people that are there and go straight down to beat the living daylights out of this poor little magpie in the, in the small cage. And thankfully, the magpie can't get at the small magpie. But so eventually, it just comes straight down, finds its way into the hole, and then we rush up because it's inside the other cage, and we're able to get it. And then, what did you do with it? With a magpie that is attacking kids and, right. and parents, what do you do? Well, that's 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 became what uh, probably the most important thing that we were able to determine because we didn't know what really to do there. We 
we were solving a conflict and the, the, we got thousands of calls every year, literally not, not exaggerating, and we couldn't catch all of them. So we had a strict priority system where if a whole lot of people, especially lots of vulnerable people were being injured, we, that's top of, the, top of the range. We had to go and get that bird and take it away. So we could catch them easily, what to do with them next. Well, we thought we'll take them away. We just took them on long trips. And eventually, after hundreds of b- birds, we worked out that if you took at them a certain distance, they wouldn't be able to find their way back. So it became what is now the, the standard practice in lots of places in Australia, translocation. But what was left, presumably, were baby magpies and a female magpie who's yeah. lost the protector. What, what was going to happen to the oh, birds this was, who this were was left? Terrible. We were really worried about this, genuinely. Ethically, we were worried about it because we are taking... So male and female magpies are very egalitarian about childcare. They spend about the same amount of time looking after the chicks and finding the food and all those sorts of things. But we are, at the crucial time when there's big chicks in the nest, when the parents need all the help they can get... We're taking away half the equation, removing the dad from the system. And we were terrified because well-known among behavioural ecologists and infamously the most famous one would be lions. When lions take over a pride from the previous monarch, the first thing the new male does is kill all the the cubs because he didn't want to raise somebody else's cubs. And then all the females then become available for him to mate with him and, and so he will have his own cubs next time. And we thought that was the most likely thing. It was the most likely thing to happen. What and did it, you find out and it was happening? didn't happen. It was unbelievable. So the least likely thing to happen from the evolutionary perspective was the male will look after the chicks that are absolutely definitely not his if a new male turns up. So we, we then started a whole new project. What happens when we remove the male? Normally we would just catch the male and drive off in a cloud of dust to get rid of him, put him let him go somewhere else. We then set, because all of this was done with lots of students over the years, a new project then was someone stays behind and sees, sees what happens. Well, to our utter astonishment, a new male turned up usually within the hour, if not less, straight away. So somewhere was a lurking male, and these males were fine. They were, they were being presented with the opportunity of a lifetime. The meaning of life, if you're a magpie, is a patch of your own and a female to mate with and to stay there. That's all you ever dream about from the day you're, you're born. And when the big dominant male suddenly disappears in a truck, you think, <laughs> is this my opportunity? Is this it? Is it? Can I do this? So he moves straight in and she almost says, if you're black and white, you'll do, you know. But you know what's required and he must have known instinctively what's required. He has to start defending the territory from other males And feeding the chicks. And he'd feed the other male's chicks. Yeah, well, this is the extraordinary thing. Not only did he feed the other chicks, which are absolutely and definitely not his own, he would feed them about three times the rate that the original dad would. And we took a long time to figure that out. But we think what he was going, he says, she's let me stay. The female of this territory is letting me stay. I'm going to do anything, anything she wants to let me be her partner. And so we think he's just like going over the top with, I can do anything you want, dear. Stepped out of the yeah. year. Do all magpies attack, Daryl? No, Did you not at all. Discover no, thank, that? No. I, Australia wouldn't be a habitable continent if every magpie attacked. I mean, magpies are literally almost everywhere except for the treeless deserts in the very extreme north. So there's magpies everywhere. The highest densities of magpies are where people live because 
Perfect magpie territory is suburban grass with some trees, which we've made magpie heaven. It's just perfect for them. So there's tons of magpies living in every town and city. If they all attacked, it would be absolute mayhem. It's about between, depending on where you are, between 6 and 12% of the, of the pairs have an attacking magpie. Thankfully, the absolute majority of those magpies never make any contact. They just swoop and they don't hit you. So it's a tiny, tiny fraction. And why? <laughs> why do some attack then? Yeah, that took us a while to work out, but it's, it is absolutely clear why they attack. The male's job is to keep predators away from the chicks. Swooping in magpies only occurs when there are chicks in the nest, not when they're building the nest, not when there's eggs, not when they've left the nest, any other time of the year. It's a very strict period of time, only when they're in the nest. So that's, it's parental protection. Are they random? If it's a magpie that's going to attack, does it just attack any moving thing underneath its tree? Depends on what they are. So we now know that they specialise. So they, of the magpies that attack people, if we just take only that subset of magpies, about half of them attack only pedestrians, only pedestrians, and of them, almost all of them attack only a single person. Oh, no. Yeah, so you so, really target yeah, an individual. So, so magpies, remember, they live in a tiny territory, a small area. It might have six to ten houses or it might have 20 to 30 people. And those magpies live permanently there. They never leave that that patch. They see kids grow up. They remember them. They know all the individuals that live in their territory. They don't know anybody from anywhere else, but they know all those people. And so if something happens and one of those humans does something that's interpreted as a threat to the chicks, and it doesn't have to be very much, um, they become a potential threat. And so the males will then target those people every breeding season because of whatever they did. How did one of your colleagues, Nick Salento, try this out? I'm sure Nick's listening because he's a, a big fan of this show and he'll be, he'll be wanting to make sure I get this right. <laughs> <laughs> Nick was uh, a fantastic honour student of mine and so I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Nick himself who came up with the idea that maybe we could experimentally turn non-aggressive magpies into aggressive magpies. Uh, and, we, and I went, well, are you sure that's a good idea? And he said, no, it's for science, you know. We thought... It seemed that they have a very low threshold for, threshold for what they regard as a, as a threat to the chicks. So Nick said, why don't I just look like a predator but don't do anything? And, all, and I instructed him, think, think you know, murderous thoughts but don't, 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 don't do anything. So we set up an actual experiment where we went every day to a place where we knew the magpies, they were being studied by another member of our team for another reason. We knew they were completely peaceful magpies that didn't ever even look at anybody else. And, and all Nick did, the nest was there, the chicks were in the nest, and he walked near the tree, circled, walked around the tree, looking up at the nest and left. Did that a series of days. And I think it was about the sixth day of doing that, the male started to take notice of him and, and, and as soon as we arrived, he would then start looking at him. And, and then a couple of days later started swooping him. And so that's all he did. He didn't need to do anything. That bird had never swooped another human. Did it only attack Nick? It didn't attack only you. Attack Nick. So it, it it started swooping, but at no one else except for this one individual who Absolutely. was perceived as a threat. So our, our theory was maybe they've got a really low, th- low threshold of what they regard as being a threat, and that pretty much proved it. You and he happened to be back at that park where those magpies were nesting six years later. Yes, what absolutely. Happened? We knew that those magpies, the ones that had attacked Nick, were still there. They were still in the same place, and a new 
generation of students had been studying the birds. So we knew for the whole period of time, those birds had never attacked anybody. And we turned up there six years later. Nick had gone off to Taiwan to do some other study and come back. And he thought, I'll just see Daryl and see if there's any projects going that I might be able to help out with as a research assistant. And we turned up there and he went, he stepped out of the car and he went, I know this place. <laughs> Bang, in the back of the head. And that was six, as you say, six years later. Hadn't looked at anybody, hadn't, hadn't swooped anyone else. And we just went, that's Utterly extraordinary. It's Amazing. extraordinary, absolutely. So how is the magpie recognising, Nick? Well, we now know, not, done, not work that I've done myself, but that they recognise people's faces. Exactly like we do. We recognise individuals from the arrangement of their eyes and nose and, and all that sort of thing, and they recognise us. Because what we have done is used masks to see if we can change that. And that's, that's exactly how they do it. They use the same features that we do when they try and know individuals. It's just incredible. You mentioned that there are percentage of magpies that just attack pedestrians. Does that mean that if I ride my bike, I should be safe? So there are three categories of, of victims. Pedestrians walking around, people on, motorbi- on motorbikes, and that is the posties, the poor old blokes delivering your mail. And then the third category is the cyclists. They can't and don't distinguish between cyclists. Anything that's fast flying through their their, um, territory, they just attack. And that's an interesting one because I'm a cyclist. I get attacked all the time. And I tell people when I, and I'm doing it already this magpie season, and I always give the same advice. If you're a cyclist, stop. It's the speed that is the stimulant. And I don't ever do that because I do what every other cyclist does. (laughs) You put your foot down and get the hell out of there. Now, the problem with that is that the male, if, is the male who's swooping gets rewarded because when the male swoops you and you get at the hell out of there, you think, he thinks, I'm bloody good at this, I'll do it again. Yeah, it happens again. And so they get rewarded. It sounds like it's relatively straightforward to catch magpies. How did you and a student go when it came to catching crows? Yeah, we, were, we thoroughly misled ourselves. We thought we were pretty bloody smart because I'd, I'd been catching, I literally caught hundreds of brush turkeys with a box of stick and a piece of string. You know, they're, they're not very smart. They were easily caught. The magpies were so ferociously territorial that they got instantly. I mean, with the magpies, we had to time how long it took. One of them took zero because it landed next to the, to the decoy bird as we put the cage down, which was ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, but so then it became crows. We were looking at crows for purely behavioural. There was no conflict involved in this. This was just crows are very successful in urban environments all around the world. And we were one of the first group of people to start looking in detail at, at what's going on there. That was absolutely fascinating. And as I've already mentioned, corvids, the group of birds that is the crows and ravens and jays and all those sorts of things, um, they are seriously smart animals. They're very intelligent. They learn. They are risk averse. They do all those sorts of things. And we certainly learned that when we tried to catch them. So w- we tried so many things to try and catch them. First of all, the box, the stick and the piece of string type of thing. That was a complete failure. I mean, they just, they just looked, they knew, they just looked at us and thought, you're joking. You think we're going to go under there? So there were crows watching you as you were setting up different Always. traps. Yeah, so we... We went to a place where there were lots of crows every day. So crows, like all, like all birds, they go out early in the morning to forage, find enough food, and then they settle down for the day. And crows aggregate in, a, in an area and they just hang out. And so we found a few places like that where there was lots of crows there already to test out some of our techniques to see whether we could catch them. But, of course, they're watching, you know. 
I don't want to be anthropomorphic, but it's almost impossible to not be anthropomorphic when it comes to crows because they are so smart, you can almost hear the wheels turning. You know, they, you can hear them going, oh, oh, I see what he's trying to do. Oh, you've got to be joking. <laughs> and so we tried a range of different things, flip traps and, and all sorts of things. They didn't even bother looking at them, you know, they just, and we were so frustrated. But we did find an old paper from a famous um, naturalist scientist, Ian Rowley, who had discovered a way to catch crows. He learned the hard way. And it was basically just build an aviary, a big aviary with an open roof and a big door on it and be willing to spend the time to do it. So we went to that place. We set up this thing. It was on Griffith University campus at Mount Gravatt. And we, first of all, we just built a, this aviary and just left it there. Didn't ever spend any time there. Wasn't associated with us. We did all the work at night when the birds can't see us. So it's in the dark. So we just wake up in the morning and there's this strange structure. And anything new in, the, in a crow's world, they are so scared of. They, they are neophobic. They, are, they have a fear of the new. So if you put something new in their environment, they go, what's this? We, you know, whereas the magpies or the butcher birds will come straight down and say, well, let's you know, have a look at it. But the crows are very careful, careful and thoughtful. So we put this big box, you know, it's like an aviary without a roof, and put a, a kilogram of mince in there and just left it. And, and then we replaced the meat every day for about six weeks for a whole lot of time. Oh so the crows gosh. just became used to gorging on the, on the meat. And then we, then we put a roof on it, and the roof had a big down-facing funnel so that they were used to just coming to the landing on the, on the edge of the, of the structure and then going down to the ground and either flying out through the roof or out through the lo- open door. Well, we put the roof on with the funnel. They had to eventually, it took a while for them to learn how to do this, but eventually they learned they could go in through the funnel because it's all just mesh so you can see clearly what's going on, grab the food and whiz out through the door. I had no idea this is such a process to catch a crow. So much <laughs> You still time. don't have it. Now you're just so teaching it how time. to get out the door. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we did that until they got, you know, lots of them got used to coming in through the roof and we finally said, that's it closed the door. So we came in the night and closed the door. So there was no way of escape. And now it's very difficult to fly upwards through this funnel. And so we did that one night and we arrived the next morning. I think we had 36 crows in a complete melee, just screaming their heads off, trying to get out. It was amazing. Could you use that technique again? I mean, it worked after however many weeks of lead up, but, but once the, the crows had <sighs> been caught, were you able to ever do that again or it's a one-time well, technique? Well, it was, it was pretty much a one-time technique. The, it, we, we thought we've sussed this, we've got it sorted out, but those crows, we think they told every other crow in, in Australia that what, what's <laughs> going on. And we, we had minimal success. We, we had absolutely no success back at that same spot and we had to move somewhere else altogether in Brisbane where we caught a few others, but in the end we didn't catch that many. We think word got out. <laughs> do, you yeah. think, do they really communicate about dangers they, like that? Well, I'm convinced they do. I'm convinced they do. They, they are very social. They've got, I've got an, another student of mine, Matt Brown, established that they have true language. They have so many. We think they go, ah, 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 but they have got so many. He, he studied their co- communication in an incredible amount of detail and work out all the different things, and it's more or less like words and sentences and syntax. They have language. It's genuine language. So they can talk to each other. You wrote much of this new book, Daryl, while you were in lockdown, not in Brisbane, but in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Did birds behave in that 
incredibly big, busy city the way that you would expect, given what you'd studied about birds and, and urban environments here in Australia? Yes, I studied, I followed my partner to a job in, in Malaysia where I, and I transitioned to being house husband and full-time writer, although I'm still associated strongly with Griffith. But yeah, no, so I went, I, I honestly thought, I'm leaving nature behind, I'm going to a big Asian city, there's not going to be anything like that. No, it was, it's just the same. It's just the same. We've got crows, but we've got all sorts of other birds which absolutely astound me. Um, Kuala Lumpur is extraordinarily green. It's very much like Brisbane. It's got big areas of forest, existing original forest, surrounding the suburbs. It's not just sprawl in every direction. And there are lots of those and many of those are connected. And that's, if you want to have biodiversity in a large urban area, that's essential. You can't have it without that. Because that's where the, a lot of the animals and wildlife can live in those places. They can venture out into the suburbs to go to people's gardens and things, but most of them will then return to the, to the bush areas. In Kuala Lumpur, it's rainforest, you know, right next door to the forest. But, you know, there's, there's woodpeckers. I see woodpeckers, you know, just about every day. I can't believe that I see woodpeckers. Hornbills are one of my favourite birds. That's another speciality in Malaysia. The sounds are so different. One of the things I had to get used to was miners, common miners or Indian miners. And I went, oh, no, they've got miners. Wait a minute. They're supposed to be here. <laughs> there are five different species of miners living in Kuala Lumpur. They're all just nat- natives. So. I can't help but think that little magpie that you found and raised and looked after with such care and tenderness would be very proud of the <laughs> career you've gone on to build, Daryl. Thank you. That's, I, hope, I hope that's the case. Now, he had, a, he had a very strong influence on me all those years ago. Thank you so much for being our guest again on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. Professor Daryl Jones was my guest today, and his new book is Curlews on Vulture Street, Cities, Birds, People and Me. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. It's a heist of grand proportions and a story straight out of a Hollywood blockbuster. Millions of dollars of diamonds smuggled out of the remote Kimberley in Western Australia, then around the world. But the diamonds weren't lost to the 80s when this heist happened. The stolen gems are back in circulation. On Pink Diamond Heist. How did no one notice diamonds were being smuggled out of the world's most secure mine? Who were the culprits behind this multi-million dollar heist? And where are the stolen diamonds now? Find out right now on Pink Diamond Heist on the ABC Listen app.